Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good afternoon, uh, everyone. Good to see you uh, all. Um, My name is Fred Blackwell, and I'm pleased to be the moderator for today's Commonwealth Club uh, discussion. I'm the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, a community foundation serving the Bay Area uh, and dedicated to ensuring that everyone in the Bay Area can get a good job live in a safe and affordable home and exercise their political voice. The San Francisco Foundation and our Bay Area Lease donors are really pleased to be able to support this program uh, and continue to do uh, the work that we do with the Commonwealth Club to generate public discourse on uh, a variety of important issues facing uh, the Bay Area. Uh, And today we've got a juicy one, uh, affordable housing. Uh, We, have been hosting a series of conversations on this kind of issue and others. And if you want to see some of the previous panel discussions and uh, discourse that we've been having, uh, you can visit the Commonwealth Club website at www.commonwealthclub.org. And I will just really just get into today's today's program. Uh, We've got uh, three presenters and uh, speakers today that are going to be really great and I think bring a a lot of good information. So I am not gonna do a whole lot of framing of today's discussion because not only do we have a great set of panelists, but housing is an issue that uh, for one reason or another uh, touches us all uh, in one way or another. And so I don't have to talk a whole lot about kind of what it's about where we are. Uh, But I do wanna say uh, a few things. One is uh, at the San Francisco Foundation, we have really been all in uh, on housing, meaning that we have been uh, using our grant making, our relationships, our uh, platform that we provide for donors who are exercising philanthropy uh, in the Bay Area and our voice uh, to try to move the needle in a positive direction around housing issues because um, it's been such an acute issue. We feel that uh, it is a really kind of central ingredient to achieving Uh, racial equity and economic inclusion uh, in the region. Uh, But there are a couple of things I did want to just highlight really briefly that I think are important as we kind of head into this uh, conversation. One uh, is that, you know, housing is not an issue that really conforms neatly into uh, neighborhood, community, um, city uh, boundaries, even county boundaries. It's a a regional issue, and therefore, uh, we really think that we need to be thinking about and offering up regional solutions. So even though it kind of touches us in our uh, respective communities, the solutions really, I think, are regional in nature, uh, just like the problem is. Uh, The other thing that I would say uh, is that this is also um, an issue that is intersectional, uh, which means that, um, you know, it's not kind of an issue that we experience in a siloed kind of way. Uh, If you're focused in on education or concerned about economic development, or concerned about homelessness. Uh, that's a, those are housing issues. Housing issues sit at the center of that. And you know, no uh, issue has been made even more clear to us around the, than the intersection between housing and health over the last couple of years. When we are asking people to social distance or uh, shelter in place, uh, those things are hard to do uh, when you don't have a safe, stable, and affordable home. Uh, and so that's another thing that I think is important and that you'll see as a uh, ingredient in all of the conversations we're having. Uh, but last, which I think is a good way to uh, segue into the conversation we're about to have, is that um, we know 
uh, how problematic it is. We know what kind of crisis we're in. We know uh, when we look at kind of rents and uh, trying to purchase homes and we see the scale of the homelessness issues uh, here in the Bay Area, uh, that we've got a problem. Uh, and uh, that problem is pretty intense for us in the Bay. It's, no, uh, it's actually a, more intense for us than some other regions in the country. Um, the thing that's kind of optimistic, that makes me optimistic, at least though, about uh, the Bay Area is that we have so many people working on solutions. Uh, and we do know uh, some of the things that work. And uh, we don't actually, actually hear uh, a lot about the solutions. So that's what we're focused in on today. Uh, and we've got three folks uh, with us today that are focused on solutions, and I hope going to uh, share a few things. First is uh, uh, Cindy Chavez, who is a Santa Clara County supervisor. I'm not going to go into everybody's kind of bio and depth right now because I'm going to ask the, the speakers to say more about themselves and their organizations in a minute. But welcome, Cindy. Um, Tamika Moss is CEO and founder of All Home, and she'll talk a little bit more about uh, what All Home is about and what they are uh, up to. Uh, welcome, Tamika. Uh, and last but not least, uh, welcome Dan uh, Salslack, who is the Executive Director of Resources for Community Development. And he'll talk a lot more about the, the work that his organization does and what brings him to the work as well. Um, but before I jump into the first question, just a reminder uh, that we want to hear questions from you as well. Uh, and so I'll be kind of peppering these folks with questions, uh, but I'll also be collecting questions from you all. So uh, if you have a question for our guests or for me, please put it into the YouTube chat box and we will uh, try our best to uh, get to them uh, in the latter part of the program. All right, so let's go, y'all. Um, first question, uh, and I guess I'll direct it to you, Tamika. Um, just talk a little bit about um, what your organization is about and what the work that you're doing, but also if you could share maybe a little bit of personal reflection on kind of what brings you to this work and why place is so important to you personally. Well, thank you so much, Fred, for being our, our esteemed moderator. I'm so happy to be in uh, the space with my colleagues to talk about this critical issue. Um, so I come to this work really, you know, in the video that sort of began this, this uh, conversation, Fred, when you were talking about how it's critical for us to create opportunities for people to reach their full potential. And I actually got that message from my grandmother when I was a child and how what she did, the sacrifices she made for my family, for my sisters and I, um, was about creating those opportunities for us. And so I grew up with that set of values and it has manifested in, in a career of over two decades of fighting for housing and economic justice, both in the public sector as well as the nonprofit sector. So for me, it's such a foundational necessity to have safe and affordable homes for folks. But as you said, it's, it's also um, foundational to every other aspect of people being able to thrive and, and live their full potential. So that's why it's so personally um, important to me. And uh, with respect to All Home, we are an organization that is focused on regional solutions, as you first mentioned. Um, I started this organization almost four years ago with, with the understanding that this, this issue of housing and housing insecurity, homelessness, economic security, all of those things are inextricably linked, and we can't solve them one community at a time. 
We actually have to be in in partnership across our nine counties, working with our cities, working with community-based organizations, in partnership with people with lived experience. So we really try to lift up solutions that work. We provide resources to efforts that are really uh, proven solutions that are data-informed. And we bring stakeholders across the entire spectrum of this ecosystem together to help us come up with strategies that can actually scale to the size of the challenge. And so I'm super excited to actually have a discussion focused on solutions because the fact of the matter is we can spend so much of our time animating the the problem because the problem is real. And yet we are not motivated um, to to move forward if we're not focused on solutions. So I'm super excited to uh, to be in conversation today. Thank you, Tamika. Um, Dan, tell us a little bit about resources for community development and what brings you to the work. Sure. So uh, thanks for uh, having me. And uh, yeah, resources for community development, RCD. Um, we're, you know, we look at this, we're the practitioners. We're a builder. We're a nonprofit affordable housing developer. Um, we also, you know, operate the housing um, for many, many years. This is permanent housing. Uh, about uh, 30% of our housing stock, which is at this point about 2,600 apartments in five different Bay Area counties, is supportive housing, which is housing that um, really um, is supporting folks coming from homelessness, people with special needs. Um, so we have a deep history um, providing that housing and, um, and also um, for many years um, operating it. Um, we do four different things in our organization. We do a real estate development component, which is, you know, uh, pretty interesting. And, you know, that's how we um, produce more affordable housing. It's one way we do it. And I think it's really uh, exciting that we've been able to produce much more. We have 1,500 apartments um, in our pipeline. Um, and we can talk about, you know, what's been uh, great about that and what's been more challenging. Um, I also think there's a lot of other solutions that are out there that are also pretty exciting right now. Um, we also uh, provide uh, social services to our residents, really important um, to support um, folks once they're in the housing. Um, we operate the housing for the long haul to make sure that it continues to um, be really sustainable and great for the residents and the community. And we also have a community development component of our organization that we started about five or six years ago, which um, aims to go beyond just the housing that we provide, but also um, provide support to the neighborhoods where our housing is located. And we've really um, done quite a lot of work in the Ashland Cherryland, kind of unincorporated uh, part of um, Alameda County. Um, and, uh, you know, with some um, great support from the county and the San Francisco Foundation to really try to move the bar on, you know, not only housing needs, but other needs like healthcare um, uh, and many other things. So, so we do that. Um, I would just say, you know, for me, you know, I kind of got into this as a younger person. I grew up in Chicago, which, you know, is kind of a, you know, it's a really different environment, but uh, I think as a city um, and to kind of see how people and neighborhoods um grow and change, and frankly, what's worked and what didn't work. I mean, Chicago has a tremendous, uh, I think, negative history with housing in many ways. I mean, it's still a very uh, segregated place. It's a place that um, we haven't really, I, I, don't, I, think, I think in some ways, 
there were some mirrors um, to, frankly, some things that, you know, we see here as well, but um, it's really different. And um, my first um, job when I was out of college was doing community organizing. And I was able to meet some folks who were building community-based um, nonprofit housing. And this, you know, I'm going to date myself, but it's pretty obvious. Like this was in the 80s and I, uh, I had never, you know, seen... Um, I never heard of this stuff, you know, and I just was like, wow, this is just amazing work. And the people that were doing it were compassionate and community based. And, um, you know, the housing they did was tremendous for the time. And, you know, I just want to say that for me, um, there really is kind of a magic intersection of place and people um, when you're doing this. There, there's something about all of the different things that have to come together, the complexity of building, the complexity of working with the people who will live there, all of the different um, things that you need to do that's pretty pretty exciting. And um, uh, it's so it's something that's really um, kept me excited for you know over 30 years. Thank you, Dan. Supervisor, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Tell us about the county and, and tell us about how you got engaged in this. What motivates you? Oh. Thank you, and Fred, thank you so much. And I'm excited to be having this conversation uh, with the Commonwealth Club. Uh, so I am on the Board of Supervisors in Santa Clara County. And one of the challenges that we saw across the state of California is that when cities no longer had redevelopment monies, the question was, who's in charge of housing? And for most people, it was still, oh, the cities are in charge of it. The problem is, is that as a county, we're responsible for mental health services drug and alcohol counseling, medical services. We have one of the largest public health systems in the state. And what we realized is we could be as focused as we could on all of those services and still have people not thrive or succeed. And I just want everybody listening to imagine the situation for you if you were struggling with drug addiction or alcohol addiction and trying to recover from the street, and then we find you housing. We were doing it backwards. Um, and then what happened for the county is that Destination Home, under the leadership of Jennifer Loving and my predecessors, did a, a cost study. And here's what we learned. We were spending a lot of money to keep it essentially to support people in their homelessness, in their homelessness, and not moving the dial in terms of ending human suffering or making sure that people really could thrive. Um, and we know this primarily impacts low-income people of color, and we had an opportunity. And we can talk more about the solutions, but I'll just say that the county's approach has been partnership, 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 leverage, leverage, leverage. Our goal is to build the permanent supportive housing that we don't have, to make sure we have interim housing for people as they're stabilizing until we can get them into that permanent housing, and then to keep people from becoming homeless in the first place. I mean, one of our ahas during COVID was that we were able to cobble together money from the public and private sector. We kept 20,000 families housed, two thirds of them with children, 20,000. 20, so, you know, I, I'm just delighted to have this conversation and I'll just wrap up with this point. I think we all have, have could have a personal story. I, I just wanna say that when I was growing up, I don't remember us having very long periods of time when someone wasn't living with us so that my parents could help them get on their feet and get into their own place. And what I learned from my parents much later was the reason that they did that, besides they were just rock solid people, um, is that that's how they got their start. And I, when we were little, 
and I didn't even remember it. And they paid it forward. And this is an opportunity for us to fundamentally change the future of our region if we can solve this problem, which I think we can. Thank you, all three of you, for kind of sharing more about your personal journey as well as kind of giving us a deeper sense of kind of the different corners that you're working from uh, on this issue. I want to pivot now to start to talk about kind of uh, some of the solution sides of thing. And I guess I'd start with the question, um, kind of what in this particular moment is giving you optimism? And is there something that you're working on right now that you're really excited about in terms of responding to this issue? And anybody can go. But I will pick someone. Well, maybe <laughs> maybe I'll start. Um, you know, I, I think it is an incredible opportunity that um, this pandemic has sort of illuminated um, the challenges that so many uh, low-income families and individuals have been experiencing for decades. Um, housing insecurity, um, homelessness, a health challenges. And so it has really um, forced our policymakers and our communities to be much more responsive uh, to the urgency of keeping people safe and alive. And I think out of that, we've seen unprecedented um, federal uh, investment in making sure that people can stay housed through the emergency rental assistance program um, that was administered through the state of California into local communities. Um, California sort of innovating with home, uh, home key and room key, which for those of you who may not know, uh, Project Room Key was really an interim housing solution that allowed people who were vulnerable to COVID to move into hotels and motels across the state to stabilize and, and receive support while um, at the height of the pandemic. And the Room Key program transitioned into uh, Project Home Key, which was an effort to secure permanent housing, um, converting those hotels and motels. And I'm sure Dan is probably can speak much more directly to this um, and other types of dwellings, right? So that we can increase the amount of permanent supportive housing and, and interim housing that is needed for all of our neighbors who are outdoors. So I have been really encouraged to see those the sort of innovations um, come from this crisis. I'd also say that what we need to do, though, is ensure that the the red tape, the bureaucracy, all of the regulatory uh, things that were relaxed um, during this crisis, uh, like CEQA exemptions, um, expediting funding, um, having capital investments where you know, our house or housing partners and others could actually build uh, and rehab buildings quickly. All of that is a set of solutions that work. So we should be working to make those things permanent. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, All Home has been really engaged in this regional process with our regional impact council um, to try to do a 75% reduction in unsheltered homelessness over the next three years. And we've had the incredible partnership of Supervisor Chavez and many other folks across this region who are really trying to figure out 
how do we leverage our existing resources? How do we advocate advocate for new resources and hold ourselves accountable for bringing our neighbors indoors as quickly as possible, but not compromising the other in interventions of creating that permanent housing and preventing homelessness from happening in the first place? So I feel like the solution of doing those simultaneous investments, Fred, of prevention, interim housing and permanent housing is an incredible opportunity that we have right now for the first time, I think, in decades uh, to see how far we can get on addressing this this issue. Thanks, Tamika. Dan, Supervisor. And she's, I, I thought that was a, an amazing answer because there was just a ton there and it's all, it's all right on. I mean, to me, there, there really is this kind of intersection now and urgency is really what I kind of thought of as my first thinking of a word. I mean, I also think political will. I mean, I, you know, the role of the state is just completely different now than it was in the last decade. I mean, we didn't really have very much housing um, support, either funding or really even from a policy perspective. I mean, the last governor, this wasn't his issue. And I think it, towards the very end, we first, we finally began to have some housing legislation that was able to be passed. And that's really, you know, that's really been incre incredible to see what the state's been able to roll out in this last two or three years with things like Home Key, um, that California Housing Accelerator, which is a program that sort of unstucks stuck um, affordable housing developments, has been, you know, amazing. And you know, we're, I guess, uh, we have, you know, two developments that are going to be able to move that were, you know, stuck for a year because they couldn't get all their funding. So. You know, I see that kind of thing. I also think political will, you know, locally is just, it, the, to me, you know, the politics are just completely different. I mean, it used to be that you really would go into a project and it would really be, how are we going to overcome, you know, the backlash we're going to see? And I think that's obviously still a big issue in a lot of communities, but the support of uh, local electeds and frankly, other folks in the community, you know, really wasn't there 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And it kind of speaks to the urgency of the issue that, you know, I think there's a real sense that we need to do something about housing and homelessness. It, it really affects everybody. I mean, you know, the longer this, the, you know, the more this goes on, you, you even if you're, you're, you're seemingly unaffected because you're maybe someone who owns a home and your housing costs are pretty stable, there's almost, it's almost certainly someone in your family is going to be in this housing market. And if once they are, you get it. And so I think, um, I really do think there's been a great change and, and a, it's a great opportunity. Um, and uh, I think like Tamika said, we have to sustain. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest challenges I see is that, you know, we've actually kind of taken advantage of a moment when there's budget surpluses in the state, there's federal money from uh, COVID. That's not always the way it is. So how are we going to ensure that we can even sustain what we're building now and, um, and keep growing it? So. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll jump in too and just add uh, two points. One, I can't agree enough. I mean, Tamika's right, like this, and Dan's right, the state paying attention to this with money, like not just words, but with money is fabulous. I think that makes a big difference. The other thing I'll just point out is that the private sector um, that is not housing is very interested in this topic. We raised $85 million, some of it public and some of it private to keep those, you know, 20,000 families that I talked about um, housed. 
with Measure A, which is a housing bond that we passed um, here, we, we raised 950 million, but we've had 150 million matching funds to get 41 projects either built or in the pipeline. And that attention from the private sector, we haven't seen. So there's, there's a very high recognition that we need to get housing at all affordability levels. When I very first became an elected official, we talked about two types of affordable uh, housing, affordable housing for seniors and then market rate. Those were the two buttons you could push. And now the whole continuum is, is um, up for discussion and frankly for investment. Now I wanna see a ton more flexibility because I think in locations that have programs that are built out, the more flexible the money is, I, I, the better. And I'd love it if someone said to us, your job is to build X and Y, hit these marks and give us the money and let us do it because we're moving as fast as we can, but we need more flexibility to be able to hit um, and really respond to the human suffering that we see on our streets. So thank you, you three. There are a few things that I heard from you all. One was kind of this notion around the regulatory environment that Tamika was lifting up, the the notion that we're working, starting to work more on kind of simultaneous investment. So not just kind of a silver bullet that's all about production or all about protection or all about uh, preservation. The um, increased amount of political will at the state and the local level to move the the right kinds of policies and programs forward, and the, the increased involvement from the private sector. Those are all uh, really good ones. Um, let me ask this question as maybe a little bit of a follow-up. Um, are there levers out there that we um, know work and that we need to pull on a little bit harder, the stuff that we need to be doing more of, maybe in those categories or others? Uh, and what else? What else should we be doing? What are the things that we should be doing that maybe we're not doing right now? You know, I'll, I'll start. Um, you know, one thing I would say is I cannot emphasize enough how critical it is that we get flexibility from the state so that we can make investments quickly on the ground. You know, it's funny when we look at the whole time for the development of housing, one of the biggest chunks is people waiting for tax credits. Like, I feel like that that has just got to change like overnight in order for us to meet our goals. But the second thing that I would say is that with flexibility allows us to solve problems faster. So as an example, we did a cost study here and it shows that if we have somebody living on the street, we spend $60,000 a year there to keep them on the street. When they're housed, even if they're seriously mentally ill, not only can we keep them housed over three years, like at a 90% rate, we're spending less than $40,000 a year on them. To keep a family from becoming homeless costs us $5,000. And if we give the family the flexibility and the agency to spend that money in a way that keeps their family intact, we don't see them again at a 95% rate over a year. So what, what I would just emphasize is that we have great opportunities and we need more flexibility. I want 100% accountability, I'm ready to be accountable, but flexibility from the state and federal government would, would make all the difference in the world, all the difference in the world. So powerful, less expensive and giving people more agency. Let's do it. Amen. <laughs> Um, maybe I would just add a couple more because that is a beautiful um, uh, priority. And 
we also need permanent source of resources to actually support uh, our sustained efforts. You know, the supervisor referenced how redevelopment went away in 2012, which is our primary funding mechanism for deeply affordable housing across the state of California. And without a a permanent source to provide both capital and operation supports to the developments that we're that we're providing, rental assistance um, that is consistent, then then we have to piecemeal our our interventions uh, together. And not only is that not timely, it's also not efficient. Because in the short, in the interim, so many of our folks are falling into a crisis. Uh, When I was running Hamilton Families, one of the most profound realities that we had to contend with was that for every family that I was able to house, three more would become unhoused during the same period of time. So unless we really pay attention to that inflow, and you know, Cindy talked about the prevention costs, it is so inexpensive to keep someone from becoming homeless than it is to rehouse them once they've fallen into this crisis. And so it's both economical for us to have sustained ongoing resources, both at the state level, but also at the federal level. Fred, you know that the federal government before this administration has really gotten out of the business of providing uh, cities and states with ongoing resources to address uh, the housing crisis and the homelessness crisis. And, and those numbers correlate to increases across this entire nation in housing insecurity and homelessness. So I actually think all levels of government need to be involved. We need a permanent source that can sustain our efforts. And we also need to be disciplined about not moving to shiny objects, but also but focusing on the data-driven solutions that are actually working. And if we can do those things, y'all, we can actually solve this. But we have to believe that it's possible because we've, we've, we've really only tried to maintain the crisis and it is beyond maintenance. We actually have to get really courageous about solving it. Thank you. Thanks, Tamika. I think I would, you know, uh, double down on some of that, but a couple of new ones. I mean, one is just, I think we should really just focus on what's going well. I mean, there's some things that have happened in mean, one for me is the idea of kind of land use reform and making, at least getting that down. I mean, SB 35, which was the bill that was passed I think, two or three years ago that um, entitled affordable housing as of right. I mean, we, we've gotten, my organization has gotten, you know, six developments all over the Bay area approved saving a year or two through that law. I mean, that's a huge success and we we need to keep doing that. And I know that's something that, that folks are looking at. You know, being really um, clear about inefficiencies in the system, I think that was mentioned already and, and making some tough choices, but also, you know, understanding that there's, you know, some of it is built in. You, you won't be able to, because of accountability, you'll always have some bureaucracy. There are some things that cost more that I think are important to have like things like prevailing wages on projects i mean that's pretty critical and it you know those are those are the kinds of things but that said you know we also have a situation for example where you know our state housing department is under one elected official and our allocator of bonds and tax credits is under the treasurer another elected official so they have to spend lots of time figuring out how to work together their regulations are changing regularly you know you should have that. That should be in one place. But, you know, politically, that was hard to accomplish. So I think things like that, you know, there those things that are under our control 
like land use laws and how government works, we really need to double down on because there's other things like interest rates and the supply chain that are a lot harder for us to control, right? I mean, we're, we're linked to the, to, the, to the whole world economy. So I think that, um, yeah. And I also just one more, this whole regional idea that Fred, that you talked about in the beginning is so, it's so important because basically the way things are now, it, you know, you're, you're tied directly to your locality and we have really enormous, you know, differences in our cities and counties in this region. I mean, yeah. you know, some of the places with the greatest needs really have the least amount of resources. They don't have the tax base. Um, you know, and this is whole counties. I mean, you know, before some of the state funding and federal funding came in the last year or two, I mean, from my, from what I could see, Contra Costa pretty much had the same federal funding that they've had for, you know, 20 years and it never really moved. I mean, that, that's what, you know, that blew me away 20 years ago. It was like, how can yeah. we be planning for something that's an ongoing issue that the funding never, ever changes? And I think people did an amazing job of being efficient. And like the homelessness sector, I think, you know, really became data driven because they had to do more with less. And um, we need to we need to have the abundance of the Bay Area be accessible to all of the Bay Area. Thanks, Dan. Really good points. And maybe I'll stick with you because you've started to go right. down this road a little bit. Um, so you are what's in the way? What have, what have been the what have been the barriers to actually getting these things done? Yeah, we kind of went covered some of that. I mean, you know, I I, I thought about that question, I and mean, you know, it's, it's money is a, obviously a big one. It's kind of a, a blah blase answer, but you know, I mean, I think you, you know, one of the things that we we really need to do is to figure out how to make this something that is, you know, not not just a an annual budget kind of issue or a crisis issue, which I think it, it is a bit of both now. Um, you know, that's why the legislation, I think it's up at the state, even I think there's even a hearing today to create a permanent source for affordable housing and homelessness. Um, that would, I think, be a percentage of the, the annual state budget is really critical. I mean, you need you just need that to be able to sustain this. So, you know, the other thing that, you know, I've been thinking about is the whole idea that, you know, you need a two thirds vote to pass a housing bond in a community. And that's, you know, it's an enormously high bar. I mean, I believe that we've had, you know, votes where I think in Santa Rosa and San Jose, if I'm not mistaken, where, you know, you've come in like, you know, 60% and you lose. And that, you know, I think that takes a state constitutional amendment to change, but, you know, that is something that is just, you know, critical to be able to, to have the tools to do you know, we're, we, we sort of enter this a little bit with our hands behind our back. So I think, um, you know, those kinds of things, which I know are being, you know, actively pursued and worked on by, by a number of organizations and, and folks we all know, you know, we, we just need to keep that up. And, um, you know, and it, it's like the supervisor Chavez said, I mean, when they took away redevelopment, at least that was, that was a permanent source. And, um, so I think I think that's one, and you know, there, there, there. I'm sure there's some others that other folks will name. Cool, thank you, Supervisor. You want to go? Well, I, I was actually uh, Dan. The point you raised, one of the last points you raised that I thought was so critical is the federal government um, and their lack of investment in the housing authorities has been a way, really, of killing opportunities for communities across the country. 
And so one thing I would say is as we are looking both to build out the permanent supportive housing, Section 8 vouchers are critical to sustaining and, and frankly being able to upkeep and reinvest in these properties so that they stay healthy places for people to live is just critical. And I know that um, that is a significant challenge at the federal level, but I think it's worth all of us across the country with one voice saying, you know, th this is this is really important. Our local housing authority has been smart, helpful, flexible, and constrained. And they, they need the same flexibility that we're asking for. I would say one other thing, um, uh, Fred, that I, as I think about the region, I think we have to figure out a way to have conversations region-wide about why it's important to build affordable housing in all of our communities. Because what I think is unfortunate is that um, we have these conversations with neighborhoods one project at a time, and it's a terrible, terrible way to build community um, support and consciousness and a framework around what we're doing. And I and I think that is a regional, I don't think that can be done city by city. I think it should be done regionally. And the reason I think that's important is that, you know, our successes are, are you can't see them anymore. When they work, no one knows that they have affordable housing on their street. They, they it just gets integrated. Our failures are out in the community, exemplified by human suffering. That ability to communicate that we have a plan, here's how many people we've moved, here's what we're learning, here's what we're not doing anymore, and here's how we're gonna get people the housing and the services they need, and keeping that in a very real time where the community can be engaged is so needed, and I think that can only be done regionally. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess I would just add maybe some context for the sort of structural nature of these challenges. You know, I think it's really easy for people to who experience um, homelessness in their communities to want to understand the individual's challenges, whether or not they have, um, you know, mental health or, 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 or substance abuse challenges, health concerns. But the fact of the matter is homelessness is a manifestation of systemic failures in our community. The homelessness is a, is first and foremost, a housing crisis. Um, it is reflected by the disproportionate number of folks experiencing this crisis who are black and Brown because of structural racism, because communities weren't able to access housing options and wealth building opportunities over, um, over the, really the, the the inception of this country. And so I think when we are trying to solve um, systemic problems with programmatic interventions, we're missing the mark. So we have to be able as a society to hold both spaces. We need emergency action for people who, uh, for our brothers and sisters who are outdoors right now. But unless we deal with the upstream systemic issues of the over a million people who are earning less than $35,000 a year in this region, where housing costs are 10 times that, that math problem will continue continue to explode and make this region untenable for millions of people. And so I think it's important for us to hold the space that homelessness and housing insecurity, as well as our economic insecurity, are all related. And unless we're looking at those root causes, we're not going to be solving the right set of challenges. And I, I think it's been really helpful 
for us to be able to to integrate our understanding of the structural barriers and take action toward the solutions that we know will will address those. Supervisor, one of the things that you kind of listed off when you talked about the need to be kind of crisper and better at communicating what the plan is, you talked about a component of that being taking inventory of what we learn. Um, so what have we learned, y'all? Um, uh, you know, we've been pushing a lot of stuff out there. I mean, I, obviously there's some stuff that's worked, some stuff that hasn't worked. What are we learning? What do you all think uh, is important to share with the audience around what we've learned? You know, I'll, I'll jump in and start by saying, I, I think that we absolutely have to focus on prevention. And, um, and, and one of the reasons is that what I see us doing is um, moving firmly and quickly to house people in our community. Um, and, but without preventing homelessness, we're never gonna get ahead of it. And as an example, we know in Santa Clara County that every year, 600 uh, families become homeless, families with children, 600 every year. So as we focus on that group, on veterans, on transitional aged youth, we're really trying to understand how is it that we do the interventions so that we don't have 600 families with children on the streets every year. We're gonna end family homelessness in our county by 2025. But the fact of the matter is, it's gonna take us till 2025 to stop families from becoming homeless in the first place. So I think what, what we've learned is that it's not one answer, that we have to move on all fronts very quickly, that we have to learn while we're doing, be able to demonstrate what we're learning, and then we have to be able to show the numbers. This is how many people we've housed using this, this model. This is how many of them have stayed, stayed housed. Here's what the, the delta is. Because I think the more we can do that, the, the better we're gonna be able to engage the, the community here who voted at a two thirds level for a housing bond. And Dan, I counted every vote. I was so waiting. I mean, we, we didn't know for weeks if we were gonna make it. Um, but also the private sector and our neighborhoods. Like people will buy in if we can show them that we're really able to move the dial. And it's really hard to do that, but I think we absolutely have to. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll chime in with a couple things as well. I think one of the things that we've learned is that alignment and coordination with strategies and solutions work. You've heard the supervisor talk about um, the the incredible work that the county has done. That's because Santa Clara County, as a as a regional organization, represents some of the most um, strategic alignment and coordination around ending this crisis uh, than we do in any of our other counties. And it took them decades to kind of get all of the stakeholders around the table, working in the same direction, figuring out how to problem solve in real time. We need that in every community across the region. So that those words are not just words. It actually matters when we, you know, break down the silos, get around the table, bring each of those assets, housing authorities, county resources, city resources, strategy, the whole nine yards to the table um, and think about solutions. The other thing that I think we've learned is what Dan mentioned, which is we need regional infrastructure to help us meet our goals. So the development of the Bay Area Housing and Financing Authority or BAFA, tremendous. 
right? Under the leadership of, of assembly member two uh, to, to create a, hou- a housing and financing authority that allows us to aggregate resources, to create strategy and policy across our nine counties, to really think about our affordability crisis as well as our homelessness crisis. That right there breaks down the silos of dollars being tied to any one county and putting those resources in a coordinated fashion so that we can actually have some economies of scale. So I've been very encouraged by that. And then the last thing I'd say is public-private partnerships work. I mean, we have really been able to leverage resources from philanthropy, from the private sector, in partnership with the public sector to to scale some of these solutions that we see working. And so that has been a really encouraging um, design in in how we're tackling this challenge. Fabulous. Dan. There you go. Maybe rip off or rip off some riff, not rip, riff off some other, maybe we'll be ripping off some other comments from the supervisor and Tamiqua. But, you know, I I thought the income comment that Tamiqua made was was really important because, I mean, it's not, you know, it is a housing crisis, but it's also an income crisis because people, you know, I I mean, I remember um, doing some interviews and um, talking with some of our residents and you could see that maybe though their housing kind of crisis or their housing situation was stable, they really had an income crisis. They needed to have transportation. They needed to have access to food. And there were so many things that, um, you know, frankly, if you are able to to get a job that um, gives you benefits and, and other types of things, Housing could be a platform for that. That's great. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, when we have income inequality, that's something that we should also focus on. And I, I also think it kind of goes to the private sector piece because, I mean, I, I, you know, I have young relatives who are, you know, couples where both of them are working. They're in their 30s. They're looking for cheaper housing markets to, to move to. And I, I worry and I wonder how private business can basically sustain a situation where a whole whole generation is basically saying, I can't afford to live here. And that's not just, and that's not even the people we've been mostly talking about who really have um, challenges because they're low or very low income. So I I think that's um, a really good reason why, um, you know, business needs to be at the table here because I I mean, I, and, and I think they are to some extent, but you know, I, I certainly, you know, see it in our organization and it's, it's, um, you know, it's, um, it's discouraging, I think, for, for everybody. And so I think that's um, something that, that I've certainly learned. And then I think just sort of professionally, you know, staying really nimble, um, you know, it, because we're in a business where things are really changing a lot and um, we're, we're responsive to things that are happening. Um, we're taking more people who are unhoused into our buildings than we ever have. And it's creating a, a different type of environment um, because those people are living with families or they're living with elders who, you know, haven't had that experience before. What's that like? You know, the funding, I mentioned the supply chain. Um, you know, I just, I kind of laugh a little bit when I think about COVID because when COVID started, we thought, oh, we were going to have a really challenging uh, health situation with our residents, which we were, thank goodness, able to avoid. And I think affordable homes where people have their own apartment really, you know, is incredibly important in that situation. You know, we thought we were, our residents weren't going to be able to pay rent and we had that to some extent, but but it, it 
you know, wasn't, it didn't really stop us. We were able to, many, mo many, most of them were able to pay. But we also thought that, and so that's good, but we also thought that, you know, hey, the, you know, real estate prices were going to tank so we could buy lots of sites. We also thought, hey, the construction market's going to tank because no one will be building and that we're going to save lots of money and crank up our production. So, you know, how do you, how do you figure all that stuff out? And, you know, maybe we were just crummy, um, prognosticators, but uh, yeah, I think yeah. that is, is so interesting and, and a big challenge. Uh, and you just have to learn that you are going to have to, um, you're going to be presented cha with challenges and you're going to need to, to experiment, do some things differently and keep learning. Cool. I want to bring a couple of questions from some of the listeners into the mix here. And the first one I want to bring in has to do with ADUs. Uh, you all remember like a couple of legislative cycles ago, whether it was in Sacramento or at the local level, there was this kind of flurry of policy activity. And for those who don't know ADUs, accessory dwelling units, which basically allow people to put a second unit uh, on a lot that's maybe zoned for single family homes. Um, and um, so one um, question there is like, is that a viable strategy Two is, since we, that was a couple of years ago, what's the status? How's it working? I think it's a viable strategy. I just don't know how much of an affordability strategy it is. I mean, I see it as a, I think, you know, I think it probably is working pretty well. I don't have the statistics on that. I mean, just anecdotally where I live, you know, in South Berkeley, people are building them and, you know, they're pretty impressive. They're they're like right up to the lot line. They're really, I think they're adding units. And I'm I'm guessing that there's there's a whole business around this, and that when we do get data, we're going to see that a lot of housing was built. And that's I think that's great. I think we should we need as much housing as we can get. So I'm all for it. And I think it's a good use of people's space. Which you know I would rather not you know have grass in their backyards. They can build a, a unit. That said, I don't know that it reaches necessarily um, some of the people we really want to serve, but I think it, it can be a really important strategy. And I'd be interested, you know, what um, you know, you know, my fellow panelists would say about that. Yeah, I would just say that I, I think while we're focused very much on the, the neediest in our community, that we have to recognize that we have a housing crisis in the state. And that means that we need to move on all fronts. Um, I, one of the things that I, I think is very interesting about ADUs is one, that the afforded, they're becoming more affordable, which I think they weren't at first. Um, and there are whole industries that are um, popping up around being able to supply ADUs. I know the city of San Jose and many other cities are fast tracking their permitting process to try to bring down the cost of ADUs. So I think that's all to the good. And I also think honestly, it can help free up um, home space for families that, you know, where you have a, a senior um, or two living in a home that don't need their big home that are comfortable living in back and renting their home to a growing family. I mean, I think it adds flexibility to the market, which we absolutely need uh, flexibility. And one last thing I'll say, there is no silver bullet. And what that means is that we're moving on all fronts all the time with the most effective strategies we can to build along the continuum. To make anything that? Um, I would just say that there continues to be a great deal of interest in ADUs. I know the Bay Area Council has been working on legislation for the last 
four years to make it easier and more affordable um, for people to use uh, to access ADUs, especially low-income homeowners, where that can be a, a wealth-building opportunity for them to stay in their homes, as well as create more living space for family members. But I think Dan is right. It's not necessarily a tool that's going to bring um, extremely low-income folks necessarily into these housing um, opportunities, and, and we need more along the continuum. So All Home has been really supportive of um, ADU development. And, and trying to, to figure out the policy implications for making it easier to finance them. Um, I know there's also a lot of modular construction uh, pop-ups now trying to do ADUs. All of that is good. We need it faster. We need more of it. And we need it accessible across the economic spectrum. So I'm all for that. Thank you. Um, you know, one of the, the things that you hear folks talk a lot about, it's been mentioned several times on this panel, um, is the need to develop new housing at all levels of affordability. I, I think one of the questions that I had uh, from the um, um, listener, though, is um, how do we prevent that from being reduced down to a uh, trickle-down approach to housing where we're just trying to uh, develop more market-rate housing and hope that it uh, that takes the pressure uh, downstream off in the market? Well, the listener is obviously uh, seeing the trend lines over the last 30 years uh, across the Bay Area, where we have built more, much more uh, market rate housing than we have uh, housing for people with extremely low incomes. And that's part of why we are... Um, advancing a piece of legislation 2094 to require that um, the housing, uh, the regional housing needs allocation or RENA doesn't currently require jurisdictions to report on how much housing they're producing uh, for extremely low income households. And so we are advancing a piece of legislation to require that so that in that report, jurisdictions can actually look at, okay, we've done this level of affordability, we've done this level, and this is how much ELI housing we produced. If we don't have those kinds of checks and balances in our system, we are the market does dictate how much housing gets built. If you don't have deep subsidies in your community or local measures like Measure A in Santa Clara County and others across the region, you don't have the resources to do the deeply affordable housing that we've been talking about all hour. So we need to, to make that a a policy and political priority in order to ensure that we're getting um, enough of that production across the region. Anything else? Yeah, I, I would hate for, I don't think it's great if cities um, focus, you know, on sort of supporting, you know, a higher level of income of, of housing, but I think it is a, it is a need, you know, I mean, there's this whole level of, because we're, we're basically, I mean, the highest income that we can ever really produce is 80% of area median, which is, you know, I, I forget how much that is. It's probably 70, 80,000 or something like that for a, a family, which is, you know, there are many, many people who are out there in communities who are, you know, working people, you know, teacher housing, which I think it's kind of pretty great that school districts are kind of taking that on. I mean, you know, I, I kind of go back to employers that it feel, you know, to me, people are, you know, employers are employing a lot of people who literally can't afford the rent. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's great if you pay people a good income. 
But if you, you know, if you have a job and you can't afford the rent, it's, it's, it's a big challenge. So I do think this kind of 80 to 120% of median level, I understand why people really are interested in it. It's pretty hard to produce because there's no direct funding source or that I think there's a state program, but it's pretty limited. And, uh, you know, I think, I think, um, yeah, I think it's something that we, we want to look at. Um, but I also totally agree that it's very, very hard to produce housing for people at the lowest end. And I, I certainly would uh, think that's where the emphasis should be. You know, I would only add um, two thoughts to this. One is that I, I think the idea that trickle down, um, it's almost like we'll build market rate or luxury housing and eventually it'll become um, we'll either have enough housing so everybody's going to be okay or it'll become unappealing and then it'll be available to lower income communities. I mean, that's really what people are saying. And I think we have to just be honest that um, we don't build housing at every affordability level and we need to, period. And uh, so that's kind of one thought. This, the second thought that I have is that, you know, one, one, um, debate that we're having in our community is, are we spending too much a door for uh, low-income housing? And and it, it begs two questions. One is, does a lower-income person deserve less? You know, I, I so I think that's one issue. I think the second issue is, and I think this is worth us thinking about, is what are all the ways that we can reduce cost? And one of them is speed, because the trade-off is always what I hear is, well, if we weren't paying prevailing wage, the housing would be so much less expensive. And the fact of the matter is, is that it's the low wages that have us have people not be able to afford where they live. And in Santa Clara County right now, the average rent is for a house, I mean, for an apartment is $3,000. So, it, you know, whenever we we want to look at how to reduce cost, we have to think about the, the what are the big problems we're trying to solve. And the big problem we're trying to solve is creating an environment that's affordable for everyone to live in, whether you are a CEO or the childcare provider for that CEO. Yeah, thank you. Um, a few more questions here. Um, one you will love, this first one you will love. How do we solve for the ever-present NIMBYers? Oh goodness, it's a perennial question. Uh, I think I think the supervisor spoke to this earlier, and I'll just sort of double down on it. Um, you know, we don't have the luxury uh, anymore of deciding. Uh, how exclusive or not inclusive our communities can be. I feel like that is a paradigm that that no longer serves the the majority of the communities in the Bay Area, right? Where everybody was like, oh, I, I got gates. Um, I can afford it. Um, you can't, sorry for you, right? Like the, the crisis that we're experiencing is not just happening for our most vulnerable neighbors. It's happening for the businesses who can't afford to pay their workers living wages, whose um, children can't afford to live here once uh, they go away to college and come back and there's no housing available because it's $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. So 
NIMBYism, I think, has to be confronted with courageous reality checks from every member of our community that's saying, look, you don't want a homelessness problem on your block or in your community. The way you solve for that is to make sure there's housing for those folks. So anytime a housing development is proposed, we need to embrace that, no matter what neighborhood, no matter what city, no matter what county, because we are not going to be able to address the, the human suffering and the societal ail that is this crisis without saying yes to housing. So I think we have to just change the paradigm, Fred. NIMBYisms will, NIMBYism will always be there, but they can't be the loudest voices in the room when this issue is actually a challenge for everyone in the Bay Area, no matter what your financial or housing position is. Dan, did you want to jump in or do you go, no, go I, ahead? I, I was going to say, I think I, you know, sort of, you know, maybe at the project or tactical level, I mean, we, we really do, you know, we, we do what we always do, which is really try to be responsive and uh, clear about um, what, what we're doing and respond to the community. If, if there are uh, folks in the community who, who want to be involved after the building is um, completed, you know, we'll do that. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that also this is slowly changing. I think I sort of feel like the, um, what's the word, the appropriateness of being a NIMBY is not what it was before. I think there really is this sort of sense of, you know, YIMBY. And also it's just, you know, it, 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 it's, and it's, you know, I hope I'm not dreaming this, but, I, you know, I think there really is a sense that, you know, of people that maybe it's not the, the, the right thing to do. And I know that when it comes to people's, um, you know, people's house, people's neighborhood, that often doesn't, you know, play out. But I'm a little, I mean, that is something I'm a little more optimistic about than I was if you'd asked me 15 years ago. And I'll, I'll chime in here. I, I'll tell you what I think. I think we have to have buildings that are beautifully designed, that respect the neighborhoods they're in that we keep our word that they're run really well. And the reason that's important is that, frankly, I, I, in my time in public office, almost every project, whether it has been market rate or affordable, has had opposition. And that's because, frankly, in the past, we don't always live up to what we tell neighbors are gonna come into their communities. You know, if it's they, buildings, new buildings should fit into neighborhood character, we should spend money on design. We should have a phone number that people can call during construction and when it's operating, that if there are challenges, they can call. And the better job we do, and by the way, again, I'm gonna say this for all affordability levels. When I first got on the city council, um, I had a development that when it came out of the ground, didn't look like what the developers told the community was gonna look like. And it was painted a color that could only be described as offensive. This neighborhood said yes to the project before it was being built. And afterwards, they became NIMBYs. They weren't NIMBYs. We made them NIMBYs. So I think we have to not surprise people. We have to engage them in a meaningful way. And we've got to knock it out of the park. And we should be doing that across the affordability spectrum. This is not just about affordable housing. It's about making neighborhoods great and making people not afraid of their neighbors. I mean, we again, sometimes we do that. And we can do better. Tamika, you started to go down this road for a second when you talked about how the how black and brown communities have been disproportionately uh, impacted by the uh, 
the crisis that we're experiencing around housing and homelessness. The listeners asking kind of everybody to really talk a little bit about what are your thoughts on the root causes of homelessness and are we doing enough to be responsive to that? Yeah, I mean, it's as I said a, a bit ago, you know, it is not accidental that there is an overrepresentation of black and brown people experiencing this crisis because of the structure, the racist housing policies that still permeate the way in which we build housing, the way in which we do land use. Um, and, and those are, are those, um, implications and uh, covenants are still affecting how, in fact, people um, are housed today. So, you know, as as the supervisor was just saying, like, we need beautiful buildings, we need great design and so forth. But I think the other thing we need to challenge is the classism and racism that undergirds this fear, right? That you need to be afraid of your neighbor because they're poor, because they have been unhoused. You know what I'm saying? Like the fact of the matter is people get sicker and more ill and more vulnerable when they are unhoused. And when they are housed, they get healthier. They get, (laughs) they become community partners. They have much more bandwidth to be active community members. And so to me, we can't keep setting aside the racialized nature of this crisis as if we can solve it without confronting it. Um, And I'll just give you a very specific example, Fred. In the city and county of San Francisco, the average median um, income for African-Americans in the city and county of San Francisco is $30,000 a year. What, What housing even if you are working multiple jobs, you're doing all the things that society says you're supposed to do in terms of your self-sufficiency and caring for your family. What in the world are you going to do with $30,000 a year in this housing market? So that's when I talk about sort of the poverty of homelessness and housing insecurity and how that is hyper, um, hyperly racialized. And unless we look at how, in fact, are the interventions that we're proposing taking into account the the cultural uh, conditions, right, that, that Black and Brown community members are experiencing, and not just like listening, um, but changing the way that we administer those programs and those policies that actually reduce the disparities. So again, we can't, talking about it isn't enough, we actually have to take action around intentionally dismantling that historic uh, systemic challenge that this this housing um, market was built on. Frankly, I want to I want to add something. I think Tamika is is absolutely right, and I just want to add a, a perspective. Often, I hear people say, "You know, if we could just make sure that everybody graduated from high school, um, this disparity would go away," and you know, we have a school in um, a school district in, in Palo Alto that spends $22,000 per child per year um, in their school. Um, I could pick a school district on the east side of San Jose that that is $12,000 a year. And the resource problem isn't just in the classroom, but then there's the community resource problem, right? The, that child not only has a $22,000 investment in them, they have a summer filled with activities and camps and learning opportunities. And the kids that, that I represent um, don't have nearly 
any of that, right? The, the programs that they are uh, um, able to go to are programs that they can afford. And often we're looking at um, children who are environments that, that frankly don't have um, a, a learning environment to them. So I, I think what we have to really recognize is that what we're talking about is fundamentally changing everything because we've been doing it wrong for so long that we don't even see the gaps. And, you know, I, I, I'll just wrap up with this point that I was talking to somebody who I respect very much, who said to me, you have got to just make sure children stay in school. And I was thinking about this 22,000, 12,000 number. And then I thought, what would it actually take to level that playing field? And we're probably talking about $30,000 a child in the schools that I represent just to break even. So we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to say, Cindy, to that point that someone um, much smarter than me once said, racism is the water, not the shark. It is what we consume. It is how we think. It is the context in which we we live. So to confront that is, as you said, it is it is everything. Yeah, and I think I think the the, the comment about it it's sort of being pervasive and kind of what what we're what we're built on. It, you know, it, it's so true because you know basically this is this is again I I, I housing is one symptom. It, you know, it, it is all intersectional. You know, there's health, there's there's jobs. This is something that we in some ways we're we're sort of reaping what what happens when you build an economy, but you don't build it for everybody. And, um, and I think that's something we really have to look at really hard and say, what, what are we going to do beyond, you know, trying to really kind of handle an emergency? Where are we going where we can turn this around? Thank you, y'all. You know, I could uh, talk to you all about this subject uh, all afternoon long, but I want to uh, end with a real important question here. If you're not an elected leader or someone who works in the housing industry or in a nonprofit that's constantly responsive to this, and you're just a, uh, an ordinary person who's concerned about this issue, um, what, should, what should I be doing? Like for the lay person who's just trying to say, like, how can I be a part of the solution? What should I be doing? Um, you know, I'll, I'll jump in and maybe uh, a little unorthodox, but one is, you know, think about having a career in uh, housing or homelessness. I mean, we need people. We're, we are, you know, for good or bad, a kind of a growing sector, I think, right now. And uh, I think there's, um, there's a lot of opportunity and need. And, um, you know, it's, I, I think you can really do a lot of good in the world and, um, and support people's lives. So I, I think that's one. I mean, the other one is a little, a little out there, but you know, I, I would just say, look at the housing market with empathy. I mean, I, I really do see that um, from from where you sit makes just a huge difference in all this. And um, I think there are, I mean, I met, know plenty of people my age who, you know, I kind of said this before. You know, you, you know, it's unfair generationally. We were able, uh, people my age were able to buy a house, and you know, your your housing costs at that point, you got a lot of control over. Um, many, many, most people here, probably 70, 80% of our neighbors don't have that. And if we don't have it in our family, 
we're going to have it. So when you, you know, what does it mean to have a rent of the average rent of $3,000 a month? I mean, that's, so be, look at it with that, with an empathy lens. Yeah. I've often been told what looks like somebody else's problem today is going to be yours tomorrow. <laughs> you know, one thing I would say is join your neighborhood association because those neighborhood associations are, are really critical to what happens in your neighborhood. And if you're a person who would support more housing, uh, you know, that is a way to really engage at the grassroots level and, and help uh, Dan and others as they're bringing their projects forward. So that's one thing I would say. The other is that in every city and in the county, they all have housing commissions. You know, those are something you can apply to get involved. You can, you can weigh in and make sure that your, your voice is heard. And then I would say there are lots of organizations, whether it's Destination Home or our Housing Trust or All Home, that if you want to make a contribution, like a financial contribution, get on their newsletters, become part of the, the, these communities, there's a way to do that. And we really, really could use your help. And I know a lot of folks um, who, are, who tune in are already doing volunteer work through their, their churches or their communities to make sure that people are fed and clothed. And this is an extension of that very good work you're doing um, and just asking people to bump it up a little bit so that we really can, um, I think, end homelessness in our communities. Like I, I actually have confidence that if we can get everybody engaged, uh, rowing at least generally in the same direction, we're gonna get to resolve this. Absolutely. I, I would just close by saying, say yes to housing. You know, if you're at your dinner table and somebody's asking you, you know, did you hear about this new development that's happening down the street? I'm a little nervous because the formerly home say yes. If you hear about a market rate project happening downtown because the workers down there need it, say yes. We need housing at all income levels in order to meet the, the needs of our community. And I think if you're nervous, turn that frustration into action. You can absolutely say yes, even in casual conversation, or you can call in to your boards of supervisors or your city council members and say yes, because we need an all in, all yes, uh, uh, and a yes and sort of approach to how we tackle this issue. And then the last thing I'd say, Fred, is just there are a ton of smart lay people out there who give a damn about their communities. Just see beyond the people in front of you and understand that there's so much more going on. We've been talking about the intersectional nature of everything that touches our lives um, as, as we sit in our own seats, affect other people in different ways. Understanding that when you're, when you're trying to understand this crisis and bringing that empathy and compassion to the table. So Dan, Cindy, Tamika, thank you so much for being with us today. But more importantly, thank you so much for being part of the solution. We appreciate you being with us today. We appreciate the work that you are doing. Before uh, going, if you are still uh, listening, make sure you check the chat box in the YouTube uh, uh, channel to um, look at some of the resources that have been offered there, uh, additional reading, additional materials, all that uh, kind of stuff. And again, um, from the San Francisco Foundation, thank you to our Bay Area Leads donors for making all this possible. I'm Fred Blackwell, CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, uh, and this program is now adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Outrightinternational.org slash Ukraine. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Before we begin, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization providing humanitarian assistance to people living in or fleeing Ukraine because of the war. Outright Action International is an organization dedicated to fighting for the human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and queer people everywhere. In response to the Russian invasion, Outright established a Ukraine fund to support local partners in Ukraine and neighboring countries who are providing emergency assistance to LGBTIQ people in need of safe shelter, food, medical care, transportation for those fleeing the country, and other types of humanitarian support. Because mainstream humanitarian systems too frequently leave LGBTIQ people behind. We encourage you to learn more about how to support Outright's important work by visiting outrightinternational.org slash Ukraine. Thank you for listening.